Welcome to uh, this portion of worship. I'm glad that we get to be together again today, and I hope you're doing very, very well. We're going to make our way to Revelation 22, so if you want to turn there, I'd love for you to do that, but I'm going to take a few minutes to find my way there. This is the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, you know. And I believe, as I think most of you do, that the Bible is one continuous narrative. I believe it's a story, a true story. I believe it's a uh, unified whole. It makes sense, you know. I believe the story of the Bible is going somewhere. And uh, wherever you are in the story, there's a sense in which it is... It's real for that moment, of course, but there's some anticipation of what's, what's coming in the future. And, and the Bible's moving somewhere. It's going somewhere. And we're going somewhere. We're in this story. In order to understand Revelation 22, last chapter of the Bible, you have to understand something about the first chapter of the Bible. I've, sometimes I've used the illustration, you know, when we talk about stories, it's like if you're reading some sort of a story, I don't know, a fictional story for that matter, you don't... You don't read the last chapter first, usually. You read the last chapter, the last couple of chapters. Without having read the first chapters, you're probably not going to understand the story. And that's a little bit true of the Bible. It's a lot true of the Bible. Revelation 22 is beautiful. But I want to spend just a couple minutes talking to you guys about the very beginning. And, and it's a beautiful story written in Genesis 1 and 2. You know the story. I mean, you've, you've read this before, I'm sure. You've got this story of, of uh, God making everything beautiful. It's good, it's good, it's good. Days one through six, on the end of day six, he says it's very good. He's created Adam and Eve. They've got this perfect existence, a beautiful garden, Garden of Eden. Eden means delight. It's a great place. Everything is provided for them. There's this tree of life that provides sustenance, eternal sustenance. Their lives are sustained. And they've got this beautiful river that flows through the garden, and everything's provided for them. Maybe it's an awesome thing. They're, they're in this dwelling place with God. The language of Genesis 1 and 2 is very much like a temple. It's described in, in ways that God is like, they're, they're with him. They're, they're with God in an incredible, beautiful kind of way. But then Genesis 3 comes, and you, you remember what happens in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit. They ate of that one tree that God said you cannot eat of, and they did it anyway. Now, I want to read you something here in Genesis 3. After that has happened, God comes to them, and he speaks to the serpent who attempted Eve. He talks to Eve. He talks to Adam. And after this, it says this, Genesis 3, 22. God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What, what we've got there at the end of Genesis 3 is this picture of of everything had been great, Adam and Eve with God in the garden, this communion with God in, in his presence in a very real kind of way. But then Genesis 3 comes and God, he, uh, he banishes Adam and Eve from the garden and he wrecks, you know, puts up this, this chair beam, the flaming sword, whatever, and, uh, and they're banished from his presence. And, and in a very real way, what I want you to see here is that in a very real way, the rest of the story of the Bible is about our being separated from God because of what we've done, and we cannot be in His presence. We cannot be really in God's presence in, a, in an unmediated kind of way because we are sinful people. Our bodies have been, have been betrayed by sin, 
And because of that, we in our sinfulness cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God. And so you've got verses like this one in Exodus 33, 20. No one may see me and live. And, and in, a, in a way, I mean, that's the story of the Old Testament. Nobody can see me and live. I mean, you've got, you think about, think about way the, the way the story goes in the Old Testament. <laughs> you've got Genesis 3, Adam and Eve banished from God's presence. And then, and then you've got these stories being told as the story develops. Uh, you've got like preceding that from Exodus 33 verse 20. You go back a few chapters and God had prepared the people to be at the mountain where God was going to descend. Remember the story? Ten Commandments, all that? God descends at the mountain. He, he gives his word. But prior to that, God said, Moses, you need to make sure the people know they don't need to come close to the mountain. They don't need to come anywhere close to the mountain. They don't need to touch the mountain because if they touch the mountain, if the, any of the animals touch the mountain, they're going to die because they can't be here. I'm going to be there in a special way. And a holy God cannot come in contact with an unholy people. Remember that? Can't come, come anywhere close to the mountain. Don't, don't set up a perimeter here. Don't let anybody cross that perimeter because if they touch that mountain while I'm there, they'll die. Now, in Exodus 33, background of that is uh, Moses had had uh, gotten very discouraged because the people were rebelling and he's trying to lead them and, and, they're, and they're not acting right. And he gets discouraged and God, God hints at it. He says, I'm just going to abandon this people because they're so rebellious. I'm going to raise up another people, you know. And, uh, and Moses says, please, God, don't do that. Don't do that. And God says, I'm not going to leave the people. I'm, I'm going to be present. And Moses says, I need to see something. I need to see you. I need to, I need to see something special because I'm, I'm discouraged and I, I need to see you. And God says, here's what I'm going to do. Exodus 33. I'm going to pass by. I'm going to let my glory pass by. You remember the story? We studied this. It's been a couple of years. But uh, God says, I'm going to pass by. My, my glory is going to pass by. I'm going to cover your face. I'm going to cover your face while I'm passing by. And then after I've passed by, I'm going to uncover your face. And you're going to get to see the face fleeting remnants of my glory. You can't handle my glory, Moses. But you'll be okay as long as I cover your face until I mostly pass by and then you kind of see the leftover, the remnants of my glory. That's what Exodus 33, 20 is saying. It says, you can't see me, Moses. You want to, but you can't. You, I mean, I guess maybe you could for an instant and then you'd be dead. No, nobody can see me and live. See, that, that message is, is all over the Bible let me read you a couple more. This is New Testament, John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, Jesus made him known. We'll talk about that in a second. But nobody has ever seen God. That's pretty, that's pretty amazing. 1 John 4, 12. No one has ever seen God. As if we missed it the first time, you know, in case we did. 1 Timothy 6, listen to this, talking about Jesus. Uh, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. Listen to this. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. Notice that he dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be glory and eternal dominion. Amen. 
Do you see these, these statements again and again? You cannot see God. Nobody's ever seen God. God dwells in unapproachable light. And if you get anywhere close to that light, or you try to get inside that light with God, you'll be burned up in an instant because God is holy. And that, that, that theme of the holiness of God and our unholiness kind of kind of unites this whole biblical story from beginning to end. We're separated from God in Genesis 3. Revelation 22 says something's going to fix that. But in between, we can't be in God's presence in a real way. Now, I know, I believe, like you do, in the omnipresence of God. I believe God is here right now. You believe that, I think. But I want something more than that. And we're going to get something more than that. I think Adam and Eve had something more than that. But we don't have it right now. We get glimpses of the glory of God. We don't get to experience the glory of God. We don't, we don't get to live inside that unapproachable light, at least not yet. So the biblical story is one of in his presence, Genesis 1 and 2, not being able to be in his presence because of what Adam and Eve did and because of our subsequent buying into the same lies and doing the same things that they did. And we can't dwell in his presence because we are in a sinful state. Even though we're forgiven, we are still in our sinful state, this body as it is. Now, there's a sense in which, well, not just a sense, a, a very real sense. I don't want to act as if this isn't a big deal, but this is a very real sense in which Jesus declared God to us. And so, uh, John 14, 9, Jesus says to Philip, because Philip had said just prior to this, he said, show us the Father. You know, this is John 14. This is, this is Thursday night. Jesus is going to die the next day. And so Jesus has just said, um, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me and my Father's house and many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again that you... May, that I may receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be as well. That's John 14, 1 through 3, okay? So he's just told them, he, well, back up just a little bit. He's, he's just said, I'm about to leave you. And they're, they're, they're sad, they're upset. Uh, and he says, don't worry, I'm going to come back. And, and then after, right after that, Philip says, we just want to see the Father. Jesus, just show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. And Jesus says to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I, I, I came to declare him. So when Jesus says that, there's a very real sense in which Jesus as God in human form, as a man, he declared God. He, he revealed God to the people. And so you've got that in John 14, 9. You've got this text a few chapters before that. And the word became flesh. That's Jesus became flesh. God became flesh. And he lived among us. And we have seen his glory. Hear that? The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Jesus declared the glory of God the Father. John 1.18, nobody's seen God, but, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Lots of verses like that, but you understand, Jesus showed us God. But still, but still, there's something that we have not experienced yet. We long for this. Um, Psalm, Psalm 42, Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. We're just saying this song. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. 
My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Man. David said, I want to see you, God. I want to be in your presence. I I don't want this distance. I don't want to just come to you in the temple, you know? And by the way, in the Old Testament, uh, I meant to say this earlier, that, that whole temple, remember the temple, the tabernacle and the temple and all that? That was God's way of dwelling in a mediated way among the people. The temple was built, the tabernacle was built, and the people lived around it. But they couldn't come inside the temple. They couldn't come in. I mean, it, the priest could come in an out, you know, the outer room, the holy priest. I mean, the high priest could come in the inner room once a year on a certain day if it prepared himself properly, but, but the people couldn't come into the temple because that's where God was, and you'd die. Remember that? God said you can't come into the temple. If you do it, you'll die. So, so we, we're always at a little bit of a distance, and, and I, hope, I hope you recognize, I hope we all recognize that that longing within us, that searching for significance, that, that emptiness that we sometimes feel, even after we accomplish something, even after something we've long dreamed of happens. Maybe, maybe in your life, you know, you... You, uh, you're seeking some promotion at work or are seeking some academic degree or, or there's some, something going on you've been praying for and longing for, something that you want to accomplish, some, maybe buying a new house or getting a new car or, uh, I don't know, lots of different stuff, you know. But you get it. And we talked about this before. You get it or you get that degree or you get that promotion or you get that raise and, and there's the sense in which you feel like, man, I've been longing for that. And then you get it, and there's a little bit of a letdown after it happens. Maybe a, 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 a really big letdown, maybe. Because you've got that thing you thought you longed for, and that thing you realize is not fulfilling whatever it was, whatever that emptiness was, you know? The same thing with some sort of sexual fulfillment or, you know, a material attainment or some sort of, I don't know, whatever. There's that emptiness in us. And what I want you to recognize, and I hope you do, is that that longing in you, that searching for significance, that searching for fulfillment, is never going to be fully satisfied here. Now, I'm not saying you can't be content. Paul says, I've learned to be what? I've learned to be content in whatever state I am. Right? So there's a sense in which we can we can. Once we are fully satisfied in God, we can, we can have contentment. But even in that contentment, there's a sense in which Paul himself, who said, I've learned in every state I am to be content. That same book, that's in Philippians 4, same book in uh, chapter 1, Paul says, I'm ready to go and to be with Christ. He recognized that in this life we may have something approaching contentment, but even in that, we realize that that experience is not what it's going to be like when we get to be with Christ. So he said, I'm, uh, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm ready to die and to be with the Lord. You know, he says that. So we're longing. We're longing for something more. And I think what I know, what the scriptures teach is that we're longing for the world as it once was. We're longing for the world as it will one day become. Matthew 5, 8. There are hints at this. Blessed are the pure in heart. Some of you can finish that. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
We want that. And so, Revelation 22. I said I'd make my way there. I hope you're there because I actually want to turn back and, and look at a couple of things earlier in that, and, and you won't see these. They're not going to be on the screen. Are you there in Revelation 22? Love this. This is pretty awesome stuff here. And I know that whatever I say in this lesson inevitably will fall short. I know that. Revelation 21 and 22, John is getting a glimpse of what is coming. The Bible has been building to this for 66 books. The, the, the story has been moving here, and, and from our perspective, it's still moving toward Revelation 22. That's where it's always been going. It's moving there. We get glimpses of it. We long for it. We crave it. And in Revelation 20, 21 and 22, God cracks the door, and he, or he opens a little bit of a window, and John gets to see inside of what's coming, and he writes about it, and he says, this is what it's going to be like. The story is going to have an ending. It's, it's heading to this moment. And so in Revelation 21, verse 1, he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And he goes on and describes the new Jerusalem, this city, coming down out of heaven to the earth. This beautiful description. And of course, we recognize that some of this is metaphorical or symbolic, but it's a beautiful depiction of what is coming. Verse 22, if you're there, look at it with me. Revelation 21, 22. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Remember that? In the Old Testament, you got God dwelling among His people in a temple, and they come to the temple to experience God, you know? And in heaven, in the new heaven and earth, there's, gonna, there's not going to be a temple, he says, John sees. The reason there's not going to be a temple is because the whole existence is going to be a temple. It's not, it's not going to be a place you go to to see God. It's not going to be some, like some building that you go to and there's God, but rather the whole existence is going to be God. We're going to dwell in that, if I may, in that unapproachable light. We're going to be in there's no temple because the whole thing is the presence of God. The temple was a way of mediating it. There needed to be a temple when God descended because we in our sinfulness cannot come into the presence of God and so it had to be mediated in some way, right? In heaven, there's, no, there's not going to be a mediation. We're going to be in the presence of God. So there's no temple, but rather the temple is God himself. That's what Revelation 21, 22 says. It doesn't need a sun or moon to shine because the glory of God gives its light, that unapproachable light, right? It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Now look at Revelation 22. I want to go back to the text that Jeff read for us a few minutes ago. Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. You remember a river in the Garden of Eden? All sorts of Eden language here. And the point of that is, and I want you to see this, the point of that is so that we can see this is one story. Genesis 1 and 2, the Garden of Delight, the Garden of Eden, the river, the tree of life, dwelling in the presence of God prior to sin's entrance into the world. That beautiful, idyllic existence 
And John sees the glimpse of what is to come and the language itself is reminiscent of Eden. So I want you to just notice that. The river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. Remember the tree of life? The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Notice a couple of things about the tree of life. Remember the tree of life that was in the Garden of Eden? They had access to it. And God says in, in Genesis 3, after the fall, He says He's banishing Adam and Eve. He's banishing humanity from the tree of life, lest they eat of it and live forever. Well, Revelation 22 says we're going to be back with access to the tree of life. And, and not only that, notice how, how it's portrayed here, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. Genesis 2 is described as having fruit, but here in, 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 the, in, our, new pres, in our new existence with God, it's going to have 12 kinds of fruit, maybe one for every 12 months of the year, one for every 12 tribes of Israel, but the whole image is that it's going to be overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly sufficient for our needs. And notice it says the tree of life is on either side of the river. The, the, the whole image here is of a tree of life that spans the river. It's got fruit everywhere, and it says, uh, what does it say? Uh, yielding its fruit each month, 12 kinds of fruit, one for each month perhaps, but the whole point of it being it's going to have enough fruit. It's going to, it's going to sustain you forever and ever and ever. It, it's just, it is what we long for. We want that. We want that immortality. Yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Well, what happened after the fall? You've got ongoing hostility to our day and until the Lord comes back, there's going to be tension between the nations. It's always been that way because nations are comprised of men and women and we're at hostility with one another in our sinful state. And so when that day comes, there's no, going to be no more hostility. No longer will there be anything accursed. See, the curse that God placed on the planet and, and on, on, on this world as it is, in Genesis 3, remember he says, curses the ground. It's not going to bear fruit for you, Adam. He curses Satan. There's this curse pronounced as a result of the fall in Revelation 22. No more curse. I hope you see what John is doing here. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and the servants, his servants will worship him. And then this, and they... Verse 4, they will see his face. Harold, I think you did read my notes. I appreciate what Brother Harold said. It's right on point. I think something has happened. The Bible teaches something has happened. Something's going to happen to us. It's already happening. We talked a lot about this expression. I bring it up a lot, and I want you to think of it. That's why I bring it up. The already but not yet, I think that's true of a whole lot of ways of reading the Bible. Already but not yet, we're already saved but not yet fully saved. We're already redeemed but not yet fully redeemed. God has already forgiven us, but we haven't yet fully experienced all the blessings of that forgiveness. The kingdom is already here but not yet fully realized as it will be 
in the new heaven and earth, in heaven. Not yet fully realized. And so what John is seeing here, read, I mean, read the book of Revelation. They're longing, when, when are you going to fix all this? We thought everything was supposed to, after Jesus came, we thought everything was going to be perfect. And the book of Revelation is, in a sense, wait a second, why are we still dying? Why is there still hostility? Why is Rome still mistreating us and killing us? What in the world? And, and Revelation is God's answer to that. God is active in this world system and he's going to come one of these days and he's going to fix it. He's going to restore us. He's going to redeem us fully. And we will, John sees, we will get to be once again as it was in the beginning. We will once again be in the presence of God in heaven in a way that we've only dreamed of. They will see his face. We will see his face. I don't know exactly what that's going to be like. I don't know. I've read a lot about this this week. Scholars are all over the place on this. What does it mean to see his face? Some say, well, we're, we'll get to see and that image, I suppose, the image on the screen there, that's supposed to be something like Jesus, right? Uh, though I'm sure he didn't look quite like that. A little bit of a distorted image there, and we'll see his face. I know, I know we'll get to see his face. Jesus experienced incarnation. You know, he, he, he became a, a human being. He, he lived and died. You know, he, he looked like a person. He most likely darker skin than that. He was, he was a Jew, you know, he's a, he looked like a person. We'll get to see his face. Some, some scholars in reading Revelation 22, they say, we won't actually see the face of God the Father because God the Father doesn't have a body. He's a spirit. And maybe that's right. I don't know. I don't know for sure. Some say, no, God is going to make his experience known in, in some sort of a real way, and I believe that is true. Here's my reading of Revelation 22. I know I'm going to get to see the face of Jesus, my Lord and Savior, and you will as well. And that will be seeing God. And I believe that we'll get to experience even more than that. I believe that, that, that this experience of being in this, this new Jerusalem, the new heaven and earth and heaven, that, that God will, we will dwell in God. And, and I don't know if, if God will have a face in the way that we think of that, in a, like a human kind of face. Or if John is simply saying that what it means is we will get to experience this unmediated access to that unapproachable light and we will be in God in a way that we can only dream of. Regardless of how you read Revelation 22. And I think there's a sense in which we can't even fully understand this in our finitude, you know, in our limitations. What John is saying is that we're going to experience everything God has planned for us. Everything that we long for, everything that we want. The more I... The more you and I think about this, the more we long for it, the sweeter it gets to think about what that's going to be like. 
And the more it makes you and me want to be like him now, to, to, to serve him now, we cannot wait as Christians to be in the presence of God. There's coming a day when we will experience something that we've only dreamed of. Here's this hymn written by Fanny Crosby, 18th century hymn writer. It's called My Savior First of All. This is, these are some of the lyrics of that song. She wrote, when my life work is ended and I cross the swelling tide, when the bright and glorious morning I shall see, I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side, and his smile will be the first to welcome me. Through the gates of the city in a robe of spotless white, he will lead me where no tears will ever fall. In the glad song of ages, I shall mingle with the light, but I long to meet my Savior first of all. Some of you already know this, I think, but those words have some special significance in view of the fact that Fanny Crosby was blind. And she knew that the first person she would ever see would be the smiling face of Jesus Christ. There's a sense in which we all are blind because we've never yet seen what we were created to see. See, God created us in Genesis 1 and 2 to see Him, to dwell in Him, to be in His presence in an intimate, unmediated way. But you and I have never seen Him, not like that. But I believe... You and I believe, if we believe the scripture, if we believe this story is a true one, the only true story, really, there's a sense in which when we leave this life, when the Lord comes again, we will open our eyes and we will see for the very first time. Really see. And the first face we will see is the smiling face of our Lord and Savior. When my life work is ended and I cross the swelling tide, when the bright and glorious morning I shall see, I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side, and his smile will be the first to welcome me. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. He who testifies to these things say, says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. That's the end of Revelation 22. You and I live our lives every day in view of the fact that we're going to see him one of these days. If you're not a Christian today, we invite you on, on his behalf, on his behalf, we invite you to submit your life to Jesus Christ. You were created to serve him. God created you to live for him. God created you so that you may one day live with him and you may see his face. And if, you, if you've been searching for something and you've tried lots of stuff, you know, money, sex, power, education, whatever, You've been longing for something. You've tried lots of stuff, and you've always felt like, man, I'm still missing something. 
it's because God created you for something more than all that. He created you to be with him. Why don't you come to faith in him this morning? Put him on in the waters of baptism today, giving your heart and your life to him. He forgives you of your sins, and he prepares you for what is to come. You need to come back to him today because your life has not reflected that of a Christian. We invite you to come back, to come for the first time, to come back to him. We invite you. Let's stand and sing the song. Won't you come?